For those of you who don't know, my name is Shaner Newsom. I am the campus minister for RUF, which is the college ministry that Redeemer supports. It's the college ministry of the denomination, um, and Redeemer certainly supports our work at the Baylor campus. Um, I recently, actually last night, finished the second book of the Hunger Game Hunger Games trilogy. I I didn't pick them up and read them at the beginning. I unfortunately didn't read the first book until after I saw the, the film. But I decided with the Christmas break, before students get back, um, and, and really for my own soul, my own preaching, just everything, I think, uh, I decided I just really needed to do some fiction reading. So I started the first one on, I think, Friday and finished the second one yesterday. So I've really put some time in. They, they're very engrossing. But as I read those books, I, I can't help but be struck by uh, the, the question they ask. Uh, and, the, and the question is, uh, what, what would this be, world be like if the evil that we see inside ourselves and the evil that we see in the structures around us were given reign? We're given free reign. What would it be like? Could uh, it's set in uh, North America in the future? It's um, a dark uh, time in in history in in the, in the, the fictional world. Um, but it's asking the question: What would happen? Could we could we devolve in our treatment of each other in our world to this level? And I think it's operating um, along a, a narrative that is. Very clear in our world. Very clear among us. You don't have to be a Christian to, to understand the story that things around us are deeply broken. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to be a Christian to think that. As a matter of fact, everyone in the world on some level understands, even if they think they're a good person... Every person deals with the reality that I desire to be good and at the places I desire to be good, even I, I fail at them. I have to try harder. I have to work at this. It doesn't just happen. Even those who, again, who aren't Christians, who are desiring uh, just to uh, own their own goodness in, in, in the world around them, and they understand something of the narrative of the world that it's broken. And so what... I, I think these books, these, this part of our culture, by asking the question, they're also um, often on the, uh, on the surface and many times just by implication asking if there's any hope of change. Is there anything in, in the Hunger Games, is there anyone is there any way to escape this narrative of evil and oppression? Is there any hope that we could break out of this? Is there any hope that I in the swirl of my own brokenness could break free of the story of my own brokenness? And I think our passage today is a part of the answer to the question. It's a, it's a, it's, that question has, be, has been being answered from the beginning of history. But Acts chapter 2 specifically is, is, is answering that question in a specific way. And I want us to look at that specific way. I want us to think about the way it's a- answering that question in light of what we just celebrated. right? We just celebrated the advent of Christ, the coming of God in flesh. 
Um, and and one, one of the things that is really important for us to understand is that you can't deal with Jesus coming as a baby, God coming as a baby, without immediately understanding that that's also connected to his life that leads to the cross, that leads to the resurrection, that leads to the ascension. That the incarnation and the ascension and everything in between are held together. They're really one thing in one sense. And so I want us to think about our passage today is post-ascension of Jesus. So I want us to think about what the incarnation through the ascension says to answer the question. Is there any hope for the story of our own brokenness? The story of, as I, I've talk, I'll talk about a lot today, of the story of disintegration. So let's stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Uh, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. The word of the Lord. The grass withers in the flower phase, but the word of God remains forever. You may be seated. Dear God, we pray that you would change us that you would reorient us by your eternal word. By the words here on the page and by Christ, the living word. We pray this and ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so I believe that Acts chapter 2 is a, 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 a marker an important marker in reorienting us around a different story. It's a a marker that reorients us around a a story, a a counter story to the story of the world, the story of disintegration. It's it's a marker that's set to um, help us to understand and to live according to a different story. What's, What's the... Um, the other story. What's it? How, where do I get? I guess where do I get that idea? Is what what I want us to deal with first. And um, 
And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as we go through this, be answering three basic questions. Okay? Uh, who is the Spirit? What is He doing? And what are we to do about it or with it? Okay? Who is the Spirit? What is He doing? And what are we to do? And the way um, this, this uh, Luke, the writer of this passage, wants us to begin to think about this counter story is first to understand it in the context of the first story. The story to which it's countering. And, 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 and what is that? I believe that Acts chapter 2, here 1 through 14, is deliberately a counter story to the story of Babel. To, to the story of what happens in Genesis chapter 11. And if you're not familiar with the first part of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11 are the prologue to the rest of the Bible. They're really the prologue to the rest of human history. And what's interesting about Genesis 1 through 11, and when I think about uh, when, just the way I conceive of it, it's, it's like uh, if you've seen Star Wars, you know, where they go into warp speed. And everything just gets condensed and compacted. And, and Genesis 1 through 11 is like that. It's warp speed. Uh, thousands of years of history, thousands of years, are told in very short order with very little detail, with broad sweeps. And the, in, the intention of Genesis 1 through 11 is to give us all the details of that ancient history, but to set us, uh, set what God is doing in the context of a, of a counter story, of, as, as I've talked about it today. And that story is a story of disintegration. It's a story of brokenness. It's the story, it's the question that, that books like The Hunger Games, or if you've read The Road, uh, are asking about the world around us. Is everything completely falling apart is the question they're asking. So let's think about it. Um, Genesis 1 through 2, the story of God's creating and making all things good, making the world where he lived with his people in harmony and peace and where they lived with each other in harmony and peace, shalom, wholeness, human flourishing, uh, creational flourishing, flourishing of all relationships, flourishing of all uh, of life, Genesis 1 through 2. And God sets the world on that path, says that this is good, this is what I want, this is how I want to interact with my people, is in this reality. And Genesis 3 comes along, and that story gets broken. And a new story enters in, and Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve take the fruit, and they rebel against God, and they seek to be their, sort of their own gods. They, um, it's like a seismic event. Boom. And ripples out from it. And Genesis 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 all build to this great brokenness, this great disintegration of Genesis 11. Genesis 4, we go from Adam and Eve being estranged from God and themselves and the creation of Genesis 3 to murder. And then we move very quickly to uh, God looking out on humanity and saying, saying the thoughts of man are always evil all the time and bringing judgment on it because it's, it, the corruption has entered the world and, and been so pervasive. And then we get this kind of recreation event in Noah and very quickly things start falling apart again in the sin of Noah and his sons. And then in Genesis 10, we get the table of nations. And I think Luke here in chapter 2, when he starts listing these nations and, their, um, and, and what's going on among them, he's, he's connecting it back 
to the table of nations in Genesis 10 and what happens in Genesis 11, right? Genesis 11 is the story of Babel. And what happens is all humanity is of one language. And instead of Adam and Eve individually rebelling against God and saying, I want to be God myself and I'm going to take this to myself, all humanity gathers together under one language and says, we will make a name for ourselves. We will make ourselves great. We will build a city a tower to our glory, to our name, to our um, importance in the world, and we will gain salvation ourselves. And this is the story of what, would, what happens when our own individual sin and the corporate sin, our communal sin, and the sin of the power structures that exist in our world and in our country are given reign. And God steps in and says, no, you don't. Right? But what does he do? How does he, how does he stop this story? How does he, how does he uh, interrupt that story? He confuses their language. Right? And so what we have here in this story is, is, is Luke is, is connecting all of us back to first the creation Look there in verse uh, 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That word for rushing there is the same word that's used in Genesis 1-2 for what the Spirit of God is doing over the formless void. It's actually a mighty hovering wind, if you're familiar with the way it's said in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the fountain of the deep. The Spirit of God was there, present. And what Luke is saying is what's happening in Genesis 2 is the same Creator God that was present at the formation of the world, at the creation of the beauty and the goodness of this world, is the same Spirit that's now rushing on the disciples. Now hovering over them. And it's a, it's a, in a sense, it's, it's the, Luke is saying, look, their hearts are formless and void, and the Spirit hovers over them. And the same Creator Spirit now is, is, is present in the life of individuals here in Acts chapter 2. So the first thing we see is, who is the Spirit? He's the Creator Spirit. He's the spirit who created all things, is, is, um, was present and operative and powerfully working in God's creation of all things and calling them good. Second thing we see about this spirit is in the language of being filled, right? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And again, I think Luke is, is intentionally alluding to what happened when the tabernacle is completed. This is one example of where we see this word in the Old Testament. When, God, when the tabernacle is completed, by the way, the most uh, narrative is spent in, in uh, Exodus on the construction of the tabernacle and everything that's going to happen around it. I could tell you, I could go on for a lot of reasons why, but it's... It, the, the culminating event of that is that the Spirit of God descends on the tabernacle and he fills it. And Luke wants us to understand that the same Spirit that's at work here is the same creative Spirit and the same Holy Spirit that was present with God's people in the tabernacle. 
But that spirit in the tabernacle was present. But the thing that you saw most when you dealt with the tabernacle as a, as a, a believer during that time was that God was with you, but you couldn't get close to him. He was with you, but he was separated. He was with you in terms of the camp and the people, but you individually could not go near him. Only one person could enter that place once a year. And he was afraid of dying because God that filled the tabernacle was a holy God. And Luke wants wants you to see that the same spirit that is now being poured out on individual believers is the creator and Holy Spirit. And what's interesting is that tongues of fire, those are, not to, uh, those, are, those are intended to picture the same thing that the pillar of fire and the smoke that filled the tabernacle did in the wilderness. That what's going on there is that, that, that um, we're being shown that whereas what was once part of our separation now has fallen on, fallen on people individually. And the Holy Creator Spirit sits and rests on individual believers. So the Creator Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is being poured out and we're seeing that there's now a counter story or we're seeing a culmination of a counter story. And then... Next, I want us to see that that same creator spirit is also the spirit that recreates. It's an obvious connection. It's the spirit that comes and changes things. Every commentator I read, uh, um, when they deal with this passage, also alludes, in terms of the mighty rushing rushing wind and everything that's going on here, they allude to a passage in Ezekiel 37. If you don't know Ezekiel 37, it's, it's a... It's a famous sort of children's storybook. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. It's the story of Ezekiel being told by God to prophesy to this Valley of Dry Bones. And I, I, I remember as a, as a child in my youth group thinking, um, you know, your, your, I don't know, seventh grade science class, the guy hanging, the bones hanging in the corner? That there was just sort of a bunch of guy, uh, uh, bones laid out, and they were all intact. And, 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 I, and I picture it as a valley of dry bones. And when, when God speaks and they become animated, it's, it's like they're, they're puppets. They're just, they're just skeletons. But what's really going on here is that this is a field of, bal- of battle. Where the bones of the defeated are scattered one by their enemies, two by the wild animals that come in and clean it up, and the birds of prey. These aren't uh, skele- neat skeletons intact. They are scattered and lifeless, bleached white by the sun. And Ezekiel is, said, uh, is told to speak to them. It's one of the most profound pictures of the recreative, wor- creating work of the Spirit. And here's how it goes in Ezekiel. He said... Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And so they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. The spirit that falls uh, in Pentecost on the individual believers is the spirit that makes dry, scattered bones live. 
live. And not only live, but reconstitute toots them into what they were intended to be. In this narrative, it's a living army. A people. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God's creator spirit that's being poured out to recreate, to make us new. So the second thing, the second question I've asked is, what's he doing? Um, and I've answered that to a point, but let's, let's get into it a little further. Uh, the, the, um, when I think about what he's doing, I think about, um, I have, y'all may have seen my daughter if you don't know. Her name is Violet. She's two. And she has brought a whole new world into my life. Princess movies. Um, and so I, I've found myself watching movies, princess movies, a lot more uh, than I ever did. And one of the ones is not technically a princess movie, but it's one that she, she really is drawn to as well, which is A Despicable Me. Right? And there's this scene in Despicable Me where the girls are down in Gru's uh, lab and one of the girls pulls on the laser gun and disintegrates her unicorn. What's her name? Agnes is unicorn. Just falls into a, a, a pile of dust on the ground. And she's upset and she says, my unicorn, you have to fix it. And Gru, the, the bad guy in the film, says, what? It's disintegrated. By definition, it can't, it can't be fixed. What is the Spirit doing? It is, or let me ask it this way. When you think about the Spirit, do you think maybe in terms of your own life, it's disintegrated, it can't be fixed? I, I must confess that as, as much as I can talk about what I believe about the power of God and His resurrection, the power of His Spirit that is at work in you and me individually, that I rarely, rarely expect Him to show up and do anything. Rarely. I, I look at the brokenness of the world. I read books like The Road and The Hunger Games, and I'm right there with them. It's broken. It's a mess. It's disintegrated. It's falling apart. And I wonder if, if we, you like me, struggle to believe the counter story. The story that God is telling that His Spirit has come to bring reintegration. To change the world. If you've seen my, uh, the poster that I did for our, our Acts series on, um, that I did last past semester, I titled the series to change the world and I did it to remind myself what I'm supposed to believe that Acts is teaching about what God is doing. Because probably, because to be honest, what I really believe is that God has sort of changed the world and that I'm living for the hope of something only in the future. And I think we live under the, the mistaken uh, uh, notion that our already and not yet means nothing in between. That something already has happened and we're waiting for something that's not yet come and, we're, and that all we have to do in the meantime is wait. To, to, to hunker down. 
to live in fear. Or, I think one of our greatest, I think one of our churches, and I mean the American church's greatest struggles right now, is to put our hope of change in a political process. Look at verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. That word bewildered could be translated confused. And it's the same word in the Greek that's found in Genesis 11 verse 7 in the Greek. For what God does at Babel. God comes down and confuses their language. He confuses their attempts to create their own kingdom. He confuses and scatters them. And what we see here is an allusion to that. But, but Luke wants you to say, but it's from a completely different angle, right? That instead of people being confused and unable to understand and come together, what's happening here is they're confused because they all understand. They all hear. The miracle is that the, the, the disciples are speaking in their own language and that the people hearing understand it in their own language. Three times, for emphasis, we're told that we hear in our own language. And the story, of, uh, the story that we're to understand is that in the Spirit's coming, in the complex of the, the advent, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the pouring out of His Spirit, that complex of events, that a story of reintegration is being worked into the world through the, through the church, through what God is doing in the church. And that you and I have hope of change. That hope of change is both individual and corporate. That hope of change is both individual and creational. That hope of change is both individual and communal. That we don't simply hope that I can change inside myself, but this new story as we live it out in the world of stories, that it actually transforms people and places. Now, the way it transforms those people and places, you got to hear me say this, may come through the way Christians die at the hands of the powers that be. That's what happened in Rome. That's what happens in Acts. That what changes the world in Acts is the way Christians face their deaths. So I'm not talking about some transformation of the world where God, where Jesus's return is sort of just, uh, he just appears and, and there's no uh, transformation and consummation that we're all hoping for. Yes, we're hoping for that. What I'm saying is that the way Christians face their deaths changes things. The way Christians in the Roman world dealt with the poor and discarded we have a letter from a, a, a Roman uh, citizen um, back to his wife. Um, he's a, gone away on a trip, and he's writing to her, and he's, he, he uh, talks about these things. Then he turns to her pregnancy, and she, he says, look, if you give birth before I get back, if it's a girl, throw her out. Do you know who went and got the girls out of the streets of Rome? Christians. Do you know who stayed behind when others fled the sick and the poor and the needy in Rome? Christians. 
Do you know who died because people hated it in, uh, in the powers that be? Christians. I'm not talking about some hope that we're going to, uh, I don't know, recover the good old days in America. It has nothing to do with that. There never were any good old days in America. That's not the point. The point is how we live in light of the story of the reintegrating work of the Spirit of God. The confusion is now that is not that we're scattered, or the confusion isn't a scattering reality. The confusion is how is it that we all who have every reason to be separate are now brought together by this message of the gospel? And the power of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost is telling Christians that we're to live according to that story. Or I'll say it, I, I wanna, let me say it, say it again. That we're to live and die according to that story. That we're to live and deal with our money according to that story. You know what happens right after Peter preaches the sermon that I don't read? A bunch of Christians start selling off their stuff and giving it to, among themselves to everybody who has needs. And I know that freaks us out. I, I get it. I like my stuff too. But, but the reason that happens, the reason we see that later on in Acts chapter 2, is a new story has entered the world and they believe it. They believe that Jesus has come and poured out his spirit to make everything new. To reintegrate all things. And they live with their, according, uh, they, they live with their possessions differently now. They live in this passage, or they live in Acts racially different. What this means is we, uh, we of all people ought not buy into the stories of racism and sexism and, and the power plays that happen uh, among peoples, socioeconomically, whatever it is. It means that we of all people ought to, um, if you're staunchly Republican, you ought to say and do things that look very Democrat and don't care. Not because they're Republican or Democrat, but because they're godly and they operate according to the story of what God is doing. And if you're Democrat, you ought to say and do things that your, Demo- your staunchly Democrat friends look at you and say, what, what, have, you, have you gone over to the other side? And you say, no, I don't have a side. My side is Jesus, his kingdom. And we live in these, in these worlds where we, we I, I talk about this a lot, but we, we're willing to allow for slander to happen politically as Christians because we think the political arena allows for it. But if we lived according to a different story in the political realm, in the social realm, in your job, uh, then the world would actually look different. Our lives would look different. Our impact would be different. Why do we care so much that something we says may make us look like we're affiliated with some political party that we don't want to be associated with? The kingdom of God is so much bigger than that. The story of what God is doing is so much more profound than that. And that's what Luke wants us to understand. The reintegration is individual. And here's, I, I, I know I need to wrap up, but I want, us to, I want to say a couple things about the individual. 
There are some of us in here who live with the constant feeling that there really is no hope of change for me, that really all I'm waiting for is the day. And what I want to say is that this is saying that the power that spoke the world into existence rests on you if you believe in Jesus, and it really can change you, and really has come to change you. So we see that the tongues rest on every individual present. But I want you to understand that for individual transformation to happen, what we see here is that it it happens from outside. They hear a sound. There's actually things outside of them, objective to them, uh, that, that happen. The only way that we can find real transformation is not by getting inside of ourselves and fixing ourselves inwardly, but by resting on something that comes to us from the outside. Lastly, though, Christian, the power of the resurrection has come to you by the Spirit. The reintegrating, resurrecting power of the Spirit rests on you. And you have hope. You have hope for your past. You have hope for the future. And you have hope for the present. Lastly, I want to suggest see or deal with the what are we to do? What are we to do? We have this story unfold and every, uh, probably all of your Bibles, if you look at your Bibles, stop at verse 13. But they miss something. Um, It's actually a Hebrew literary construction that's carried over into the Greek by Luke. If you care about Hebrew, it's called the Vav Consecutive. And 12, 13, and 14 all start with a little uh, conjunction that we typically translate and. See it? And all were amazed, but others mocking, but Peter. So there's three responses that Luke wants us to see to this outpouring, this new story, this story of reintegration. And those three responses, one, are um, amazement, but confusion. They, they see it, they're amazed, but they say to one another, what does this mean? One response is that we can uh, act out of ignorance or indifference. And that's a wrong response. For us to remain indifferent to the fact that God is making all things new by his spirit in this world, that he cares about the creation, he cares about racial reconciliation, he cares about the poor, he cares about these very earthy things. If we remain indifferent, then we're like the first responders. Secondly, we see that there's some who uh, mock. They they accuse them of being drunk. There's there's another response that's opposition and suspicion. uh, Christian, do do you and I live on the suspicion that God really couldn't bless you? I, here's what happens to me. I, sometimes things are going really well in my life, and I assume that if things are going well, there's something bad coming around the corner. Because surely God doesn't want me really, really to be happy. And so what winds up there may be a bad thing coming around the corner. That's not the issue. The issue is I can't give him thanks for the good thing. I'm suspicious of the good things that God has poured out on me. The last thing, the proper response is Proclamation. Peter preaches a sermon, and he preaches a sermon that tells the story of what God is doing in the world through Christ. 
It means that we're called to believe and rest on what Jesus has done. It means that we are to proclaim it to others. And we're to live a different story. It's one of the things I love about, the, about what Tolkien does. Is he, he shows what it looks like to live a different story in the middle of darkness. In the middle of disintegration. We are called to live by faith in that message and to proclaim it to those around us. We are called to live and understand that the power of God has come and is making people new and is uh, enabling us to be new uh, salt and light, to be agents of newness, agents of reintegration in the world around around us. I want to close with the end of the story because I think it's important. This is Revelation 22. This is, this is uh, skipping ahead, the end of the book. But it's part of how we live according to the story is knowing the end. It's the beauty of being a Christian. We know the end. The angel, this is Revelation 21. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the land through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, The tree of life. I love it that the tree of life shows up at the end. This is a story. A continuous story. With its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing, listen to this, of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Not they. You will reign with your God forever and ever in the world that he made for you to live with him and him to live with you. Amen.